0: Hey everyone, welcome back for the conclusion of The Speaker Speaks. I'm the playwright Clay Nichols. It's impossible to consider the long career of Sam Rayburn and not think about the current state of our politics. At this moment, it's irresistible to wonder what statesmen like Rayburn would think of our deep divisions. I'm confident he'd be steady trying to fix it. And maybe that's how our history might serve us in this moment, not to just imagine what leaders like Sam Rayburn would think, but what they would do. Please enjoy the final act of the speaker speaks
1: i sam Rayburn, do solemnly swear that i will support and defend the constitution of the united states against all enemies foreign and domestic that i will bear true faith and allegiance to the same that i take this obligation freely without any reservation or purpose of evasion AND I WILL WELL AND FAITHFULLY DISCHARGE THE DUTIES OF THE OFFICE I'M ABOUT TO ENTER, SO HELP ME GOD. IT'S A HARD JOB SOMETIMES, BUT I WANTED TO BECOME SPEAKER FROM THE DAY I STEPPED INTO THIS BUILDING. THERE WERE MANY, MANY MEN AHEAD OF ME, BUT I WASN'T JEALOUS OF THEM. I JUST WAITED MY TIME, AND IT FINALLY CAME. I WAS STILL THE SAME MAN I ALWAYS HAD BEEN. Anybody whose change in position changes his position is lost. But I did feel like I'd come a pretty far piece from Flag Springs. I had watched this rostrum for twenty years, and I had seen the job done well and done poorly, so I knew what it took. A speaker should command respect and affection, have a long legislative experience, a shrewd ambition, and overall, he must be fair." It would be pretty hard for a speaker not to be fair. There are 434 people besides him, and it might be a little dangerous, politically and physically, to be otherwise. (laughs) My ambition was fulfilled. Oh, there was some talk of high office for me. In 1952, I got half of the main delegation's votes for the presidential nomination. But I knew that I was born in the wrong place at the wrong time ever to be president." Closest I ever came to the White House was in 1944, when my name was mentioned for the vice-presidency. The place eventually was given to one of my closest friends, Mr. Harry S. Truman. I got a letter from Harry just today. He's complaining again about how hard it is to find a job in this country after you have been president. He told me he wished that I would have gotten the vice-presidency in 1944. That way, he would still have a job over in the Senate." Harry loved being the senator from Missouri so much that he hated like hell to take the vice presidency, but we are all glad that he did. You know, Harry Truman and I were friends for 15 years before he became president of the United States. I have a little hideaway room downstairs where we would get together with a few other boys after every session and strike a blow for liberty. Some people have called it the Board of Education. I don't particularly like the name, although I suppose a few people have been educated down here. On April 12, 1945, I phoned Harry and asked him to come down for a libation and a little talk. Well, there were three or four or five fellows in here. Bill White and the New York Times was here and a few others. And, and Harry says, all right, I'll come over. In just a few minutes, why, the telephone rang, and they told me to have Harry call the White House as soon as he came in. Well, Truman came in, and I gave him the message, but he said he didn't know what that was about. Roosevelt was at Warm Springs, Georgia, and wasn't supposed to be back for several days. Harry called the White House, and he said, This is the VP. And he just listened for a while. Now, Harry's kind of a pale fella, and he just got a little paler and hung up the phone and said, Jesus Christ and General Jackson. And he left. A few minutes later, I got a telephone call. Uh Uh-huh, yes. I understand. President Roosevelt is dead. Harry Truman will be sworn in at the White House in two hours. Well, I have followed Franklin Roosevelt in life... And now I will follow him in death. Bill, have you got a sheet of paper and a pencil? Okay, take this down. We know not how to interpret God and the way he performs. The world has lost one of the great men of all time. President Roosevelt's passing will shock and sadden good people everywhere. But Franklin D. Roosevelt will go down in impartial history, standing alongside of Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson. There are mountain peaks and there are valleys in the history of every country and every age. Franklin D. Roosevelt will be known as one of the highest peaks of the United States in America as long as history is recorded. That's all. Harry Truman had some mighty big shoes to fill. Franklin Delano Roosevelt came into power at a time when great courage and vision were needed in the United States of America, as never since the founding of the Republic. He had this vision and this courage. He saved this country not once, but twice. I met with Roosevelt almost every week in the White House, and when he heard of the underprivileged, his eyes would just reach up. They would almost sparkle. He was really for the underdog, and the people knew it. That is why they loved him and mourned his passing. A couple of weeks after Harry was sworn in, I paid him a little visit in the Oval Office. Hello, Mr. President. You know it's hard after calling you Harry all of these years, but I think it's appropriate Out of respect for this office you hold now. "'I know it's hard to believe that he's gone, but he is, and you are in charge now. "'So I've come down here to talk to you. "'I have seen many men work in this Oval Office, so I know some of the hazards. "'The first danger is right here in this building. "'And there are a lot of folks around here who want you to think they know everything, whether they do or not.' They are afraid that you're going to find out that their answers aren't always the best ones, so they are going to try to build a fence around you. They are going to try to keep away from you the very people you need to be seeing. I've watched them do the same thing to every man who's occupied this office while I've been here, and they're going to try to do it to you. Next is the special interest fella. Now, if some old boy from Missouri comes out here, he transacts his business, and he has a ticket on that 630 B&O going back to Missouri. So he telephones down here, and he says he wants to pay his respects to the president. They will say, why, you can't see him for two or three days. So he gets on that train and goes back home. But the special interest fellow will come in like the king of old who would stand in the snow a week because the king has to see the pope before he can navigate. That fellow will stay around here for a month. Then he'll come sliding in here under his vest and sycophantic will say, you are the greatest man who ever lived in order to make time with you. And you know, and I know, that it just ain't so. Watch out for them. You can do this job, you know. And we are all behind you. I'm behind you, Mr. President. Harry Truman got most of the big decisions right, but boy, could he screw up the little ones. After a while, some folks started to say, "'To air is Truman.'" I warned him all the time about shooting from the hip when people started asking him questions, and sometimes I wondered why they didn't hide all the lead pencils from him down there at the White House. One time he called me up and said, "'Sam, I've been saving up three or four good punches in the nose.'" And when I get out of this job, I'm going to run around and deliver them. And I think history is going to be very kind to Harry Truman. Because the historian is going to forget those little things. He is going to remember the great things that Truman did. And the earth-shaking decision he made. One of the most difficult decisions any man has ever had to make. To drop the atomic bomb on Japan. You know, I knew about the atomic bomb before Harry did. Nobody told Harry about it until after he was sworn in as president. I knew almost a year before that. In 1944, Secretary of War Stimson, General George Marshall, and a boy by the name of Vannevar Bush came to my office one day and told me they were trying to build a bomb which could destroy an entire city. An atomic bomb. They said that with it, we could win the war without the loss of life involved in invading Japan. They weren't sure if the thing would work, but they wanted a lot of money, $800 million, and they could not go before a committee of the Congress to explain the need, or the secret would be out. I went before the House and asked them for that money and told them they would just have to trust me that it was going to be used to serve the war effort. They made that appropriation without knowing what it was for. Later on, they invited me to come out there to Nevada to take a look at the place. I told them no because I wouldn't know a thing about it, and I would probably just get in the way. To tell the truth, that weapon makes me a little skittish anyway. These unearthly weapons are in the hands of and subject to the control of mortal men such as you and me. We have come upon times whose lack is not in the annals of mankind, for today it is possible to enshroud all men in a seamless cloud-borne garment of poison and make our planet as lifeless as the moon. Back in 1945, well, General George Marshall told me that the atomic bomb was the right thing, and I believed him because he was one of the greatest men I ever knew. You have to understand that at that time... This country had one purpose paramount to all others, to win the war. I had no son to give the war, nor to the reconstruction of the stricken world when it was over, and I have often wondered what real sacrifice I made, and I cannot think of a single one that hurt. But I did what I could. I did that thing which politicians do best. I talked. Most of the talking I did during the war was over the radio on a little show called The Speaker Speaks. I had to use the public radio because I refuse to go on any show that is sponsored. I am not interested in selling soap, cigarettes, and beer. But what of this other battle line, the home front, where the private speaks his mind without waiting for the general to get out of earshot? That is his right. That is one of the rights that we are fighting to save and Americans have not hesitated to exercise it now or in any other war we have fought. Now don't mistake me. Criticism is one thing. Griping is another. Just as the men who fly our planes into battle have to cope with the sabotage of those little fellows they call gremlins. So we, too, working behind the lines, have our own breed, our saboteurs of the spirit. A fit name for them, I think, is grumlins, because they are always grumbling about something. The grumlin is the fellow who drinks his morning orange juice, eats his cereal and his two eggs and toast while he reads the newspaper, propped before him is the picture of a smiling American boy who had his arm blasted off in the gun turret of a flying fortress over the jungles of New Guinea. A picture of another lad who has had two aircraft carriers shot from beneath him and chin up, chest out, is now going back for more. And as he sips his coffee, this grumlin feels sorry for himself and fusses at his wife because she used up all the meat rationing stamps and can't serve him bacon. Probably not one American in a hundred is a grumlin. We imagine there are more because the main feature of the grumlin are a big mouth and a loud voice. and so when they set up a chorus, we are fooled sometimes into thinking they are the majority. Let us not be deceived by that chorus. Let us not be led into it rather. Let us keep before our minds the pictures. The boyish grin of a young American who has gone through hell for his country and has had his arm shot off in a flying fortress. The sailor lad who has survived two sinkings and is going back to sea. I am an optimist, and I believe that 95% of the American people are good and will respond when properly appealed to. That is how I knew Richard Nixon could never be elected president of the United States. I knew he couldn't beat Jack Kennedy because I have watched him while we have conversed. Nixon has these dark little eyes that shift around. He couldn't look a farmer in the eye, and you can't get a farmer's confidence if you don't look him in the eye. Now, there are a great many people who've talked to me about the way that Nixon looked in that first TV debate, And I told them there was no way they could fix him up where he would not look like Nixon, which to me is not a very good look. Personally, I don't worry about him anymore because I got him figured out. I can tell when he's lying, his lips are moving. There have been times when I have considered leaving this house. It has been my life and my greatest love. But at times, Washington can be a cold and Tiresome place. I came closest to retirement in 1948, when it seemed inevitable that Tom Dewey and the Republicans would defeat Harry Truman and capture the Congress. I didn't leave because I didn't want it to look like I was abandoning Harry. Harry Truman surprised a lot of people by winning in forty-eight, but the Republicans did capture the majority in the House. It was a hard thing to give up the speakership, but I knew it was only temporary. The Democrats retook the House in 1950, only to lose it again in 1952, when Dwight Eisenhower was elected president. You know, Cap Mike is a constituent of mine. He was born in my district in the town of Denison. I'm told that he was a good baby. Then he moved off to Kansas, and after 60 years of age, he decided that he would be a Republican. You know, it was the Democratic presidents Roosevelt and Truman who made him a great general. Then he came back from the war, and you know how people go wild about those damn uniforms. Well, in 52, they got all stirred up and elected Eisenhower president. Good man. Wrong job. I mean to say that he was a very likable man, never offended anybody, but he just didn't know what he was getting in for. After all, he had been in the army for over 40 years. I had been in Congress for 40, but I never claimed that qualified me to lead an army. Democrats took the majority back two years later. I got the speakership back, and I've held it ever since. I should have been thankful because parts of his program began to move. But eventually, he just got tired of his job and decided to take up golf and vetoing as much as he could. I usually try to have a little talk with all the new members of Congress here in my office to sort of give them a welcome and introduce myself. We have a lot of new ones in this term with a lot of new ideas about how to do things, and these new fellows just love to see themselves on that damn television set. Now, I think the House of Representatives is the highest stage in the land, but for the most part, the normal processes toward good laws are just not dramatic. You bring a bunch of television cameras in here, and it will become nothing more than a lot of bad vaudeville play-acting politician sees himself on that little box, and suddenly he thinks he's Clark Gable or Ronald Reagan or somebody. You'll end up with a bunch of movie stars running this country instead of hardworking politicians, and I just won't allow that. Well, it's about time for me to head home. I sometimes wonder exactly how many times I've picked up my hat and walked out of this building great many times, I reckon. I watched Woodrow Wilson address the house during the trying time of World War I, survived the Great Depression, and helped Franklin Roosevelt fight against it. I have sat at the elbow of Roosevelt and Truman at the terrible time of World War II, when the world was shaken to its center, and evil stalked the earth like a hungry coyote, and you have given me the opportunity to be there." I have had the responsibility, the tremendous responsibility, yet the high privilege, of walking with destiny, not only for myself, but for the people of the United States. I am satisfied. My political career has climaxed in everything I ever hoped and trusted that it would be, so that when I leave here, I leave without regrets knowing that I would rather have linked my name indelibly with the living, pulsing history of my country and not be forgotten than to have anything else in the world. Well, I'm leaving now. Try not to take the skin off my heels getting out behind me.
0: The Speaker Speaks is presented by Jarrett Productions. To help us continue producing work of this kind, please consider making a donation at JarrettProductions.com. Written by Clay Nichols, The Speaker Speaks was adapted and performed by David R. Jarrett and produced by Will Douglas. Sound design, mixing, and editing by Craig Brock. Technical assistance provided by our friends at Make Every Media. Additional support from Natalie Garcia, Carlo Garcia, and Erin Shalaba. This audio theater presentation is based upon the Public Domain Theatre Company's 1999 stage production of The Speaker Speaks, An Evening with Sam Rayburn, directed by Robbie Polgar. If you would like more information on Jarrett Productions, including past and future shows, visit our website or follow us on social media. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Mr. Sam, and thank you so much for listening.